0: Amen. Amen. Good singing, church. Let's say our life verse together from Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Last Sunday of the month, last Sunday for this life verse. We'll move on to a new one next month. But let's say this one together one more time. Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen. And our sermon text, uh, still in First Peter chapter 3, in our study of First Peter, uh, finishing up what we started last week on uh, living faithfully in a hostile world, First Peter chapter 3. Verse 13 through 17. Listen as I read. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason For the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for another Sunday morning together. Thank you for another Sunday morning as your people gathered under your word, gathered to hear your word, gathered to hear you speak to us from the pages of your precious word. Thank you for this text this morning, Father. May it encourage us. May it edify us. May it strengthen us. May it sanctify us. May it make us a little bit more like Jesus. May it prepare us to stand To give it a defense and to live devotedly for Jesus and the kingdom and his cause. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together corporately would be pleasing in your sight. O God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Yes, yeah, Stephen Susan, I saw you slide in late over there. I saw you slide in late. You had that 50th anniversary honeymoon, right? Okay. I'm glad you're here this morning with us after the celebration yesterday. What a joy. What a joy that was. 50 years. God bless you. Thank you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. Last week we began uh, a, uh, the topic uh, uh, based on these verses. Of, of living faithfully, Here we stand, living faithfully in a hostile world. And we said we'd see at least remember, no list is exhaustive. That's our RCC rule for list. you could probably add to this list but we see at least five requirements for standing firm in the day and age, in this day and age. Five requirements for living faithfully when the world goes hostile against us. We covered two last week. We'll review those real quick. The first one was, you must have an undying zeal for goodness. An undying zeal for goodness based on verse 13. Being zealous for what is good. A zealot. The the Greek word is literally literally a noun. We must be a zealot for what is good. We're not indifferent to it. We're not apathetic about it. We're not nonchalant about it. We are energetically and enthusiastically zealous for what is good, good being defined by Scripture, good not being defined by uh, human morality, but what is defined by Scripture. And the Scripture defines good actions as those that honor and please and glorify our Creator. We are zealous for those things. We are zealous for what glorifies God. Examples. We've been called to represent Jesus. We are ambassadors for Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are his ambassadors. Are we zealous about that? We've been called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love each other as ourselves. The two greatest commandments. Are we zealous for those actions? We've been called to raise our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Are we zealous for doing that? Are we eager and and excited and motivated and driven to prepare the next generation for a world that's probably going to be more hostile than ours unless Jesus returns, unless revival comes, unless God intervenes in a mighty way? Are we zealous about getting the next generation ready to live for Jesus, We've been called to worship God in spirit and truth, with reverence and awe. Are we zealous about gathering with the people of God to engage in the most important activity on the planet, namely, the worship of God? A.W. Tozer said this in his morning devotional, I can safely say, on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Because that's going to be our primary activity in heaven. Not our only one, but, but primarily. Even in our interactions with each other in our glorified bodies in the new earth and new heavens, it's, it's going to be All directed upward. It's all going to be for the glory of God perfectly, which we're striving to do now. But one day we'll be doing that perfectly. What a day. What a day that will be. So are you zealous for worshiping God with the people of God, for the glory of God, in the power of the Spirit of God? Are you zealous for that? You get the picture. We could go on with examples. John MacArthur said, quote, Being zealous for what is good produces a godly life, the delight and goal of all believers, which leads to pure living and the loss of one's appetite for world's ungodly attractions. The things of the earth are growing dimmer and dimmer as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And live for him and for his glory. Read this morning, Mark Twain said this: uh, "There is a kind of life that is not really life. It's a grasping for self that leads down to the grave. Oh God, spare us from that life. Spare us from that early death. Though we are alive, we're really dead. Spare our kids from that. Spare our grandchildren from that. This, this, this life that's not really life. People are deceived into thinking it is. But it's a grasping for self that leads down to the grave. We don't want to grasp for self. We want to grasp for the hem of Jesus' garment. We want to grasp for him with our minds set on things above and not on things of this earth. Secondly, we saw last week in verse 14, uh, the second requirement for living in this world is an unwavering boldness in persecution. An unwavering boldness in persecution. We must be ready to stand unflinchingly against persecution if and when it comes. Like Martin Luther, we must be ready to stand before the enemies of God and refuse to back down from, from our scriptural beliefs, our consciences, consciences must be held captive by the word of God. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and we must press on without wavering, without compromise, without faltering, without shrinking back. May God grant us all this boldness. Now, how do we cultivate this fearlessness? Fearlessness. By having the proper fear of the Lord. Not fear of the world, not fear of God's enemies, but fear of the Lord. Respect, honor, devotion by confessing His Lordship, by knowing that He is in charge and in control. I was talking to somebody last night at the event that we were having for Steve and Susan, one of their relatives, about how freeing it is to know that God is in control. It's just liberating. and We can live with with. Trusting, abandon, knowing that God is in charge—that will—and that moves us to our next point. Point number three: John Lennox said the antidote for fear is not so much in our store of answers to possible questions. Okay, it's not linked to cramming theologically. But first of all, in our attitude to our Lord. Let me say that again because I interrupted the man's quote. The antidote to fear is not so much in our store of answers to possible questions that might arise, but is first of all in our attitude to the Lord. In other words, the preparation for speaking and defending is vitally connected to our heart attitude toward who Jesus is. And that's requirement number three. We must have, if we're going to stand in this day, if we're going to stand firm in a hostile world, we must have an unrivaled devotion to Jesus. Verse 15a, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, we must have an unrivaled devotion to Jesus. Now, quick side note before we dig into this verse, okay? Here we have, and you, the reason I want to point it out is because you may have missed this. I missed this until this week. Here we have a statement from Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the deity of Christ. Okay, We have a statement of the deity of Christ. Now, why do I say that? Because as many uh, commentators and theologians and, and studies that I referenced pointed out, Peter is quoting the first sentence of Isaiah 8, 13, which reads, "...but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy." Okay? Lord of hosts, and if you look at your text, if, you, if you're reading in the English translation, you'll see that LORD is in all caps. And we know what that means. That means the word is literally Yahweh. So Isaiah 8.13 says, Yahweh of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. And the phrase... Lord of hosts describes God's role as the Lord of the heavenly armies, the commander of the cosmic forces and the ultimate captain of the armies of Israel. It points to God's role in history, in the history of his people, as a mighty warrior. That's why we sang the songs that we sang this morning a mighty warrior who defends us and fights for us. Remember, the battle is the Lord's. That's an oldie. That, is, that was an oldie, but it's still a goosebumpy for me. I still get goosebumps when I read that. And how, how, how pertinent is it for today when the power of darkness comes in like a flood? If you don't see that, your head's in the sand. When our enemies rise, do not fear. Why, the battle belongs to the Lord of hosts. The battle belongs to Yahweh of hosts. Now, note that in our text, in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter has replaced the phrase Lord of hosts from Isaiah 8.13 with Christ the Lord. It's the identical phrase except for that change. Why? Because Christ is the Lord of hosts. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the captain of the heavenly armies. Praise his mighty, victorious, triumphant name. Remember, I'm thinking back to the account of Joshua. Remember right before the battle of Jericho? Remember that? He's preparing for the battle of Jericho and he encounters this mysterious man with the drawn sword. Do you remember that account? Well, if you don't, let's, let's read it. Let's, let's read it real quick as a little side fun study here. Joshua chapter 5, starting at verse 13. This is right before the fall of Jericho in chapter 6. Uh-oh. I just pulled my little... Puffy thing off my microphone. That's not going to matter, is it? Okay, good. Okay. (laughs) Okay. When Joshua, verse 13 of Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, no, <laughs> no. That's that's really the wrong question. The question should have been, "Who who are you?" Because we can take Joshua's question: as, are you are you are you one of our soldiers or are you one of their soldiers?" No, no, I'm neither one. I'm I'm above that. I'm I'm I'm, I'm eons above that. I'm I'm miles and miles and miles above that. No, he says. Um, But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. He's the Lord of hosts. He's Yahweh of hosts. He's he's Christ the Lord. Now I've come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And look at verse 15. Does, Does this ring a bell? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy. That's burning bush, right? That's Moses. It's the same person. And Joshua did so. Same person. This is God. This is, this is a man, a theophany, a, 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 a physical appearance of God, a, a, what theologians call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. There he is. There he is, gang. Jesus Giving Joshua a glimpse of who he is as captain of the hosts, as Yahweh of hosts, as the commander of the Lord's armies. Hallelujah. Jesus is God. And here's another text for you to prove that. Now back to our study. Note the connection at the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In other words, don't be afraid and don't worry. And then verse 15 begins with but, but a conjunction of contrast. Okay. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Instead of being afraid and being troubled, focus on honoring Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, don't let your mind be dominated by fear and worry. Let your mind be dominated by who Jesus is. Let your life be dominated by honoring Jesus. Instead of letting your life be dominated by fear of what's going on around you and what others might say and what others might do to you, let your life be dominated by Christ the Lord, by who Jesus is. You get it? You get it? See, our our attitude and our mindset is going to be vital for us living out our Christian lives in a hostile world. We've got to think properly before we can act properly. In other words, don't be consumed about what others think or what others might do to you. Instead, be consumed by what Jesus thinks and what he has done for you. That's what you dominate your thinking rather than fear of the world and fear of the enemies of God. He is the Lord of hosts, he is your mighty warrior who has defeated sin, death and hell. What can man ultimately do to you? Your greatest enemy, your greatest enemy, sin has already been defeated. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, this devotion note has got to find a home in our hearts. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. But, and this is vital, don't leave me now, okay? It has to go through the mind to get there. When we bypass the mind, all we have is a blind emotionalism with no valid content. Let me quote Mark Twain again. I don't think I've ever quoted Mark Twain before, but I found two good ones from him this week. He said this. He said, and he wasn't a spiritual man, but every now and then non-spiritual people say things that that connect because we're all made in the image of God, right? We've all got the stamp of, of Godness on us, whether we're a Christian or not. And he said this, he said, we, we all do no end of feeling and we mistake it for thinking. You hear what, you hear what he's saying? We're really emotional people. We like to get emotional, And sometimes we confuse our emotions for thoughts. We we mistake our emotions for thinking. And that's the error a lot of Christians make. I heard someone this week, or someone else was telling me about someone who claimed to be a very, very spiritual person, but who said of an action by a family member, I could never forgive them for that. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, they were, apparently they were so emotionally hurt and distraught by the actions of this family member that they mistake mistook those emotions for a what they thought was a very thoughtful statement, but very unbiblical statement. I mean, what did Jesus say? If you're not forgive your brother, the father will not forgive you. Really? Well, what if Jesus what if Jesus treated us that way? Okay. That one thing, that one thing, I could never forgive you for that. What does the scripture say? The blood of Jesus covers how much of our sin? All of it. All of it. So beloved, let's yeah, let, let's engage our emotions in worship, and we've we're, we're been created emotional people, but let's not confuse emotions with, with, with facts, with thoughts, with mental thoughts. Let's, let's get them in line. That's what we want. We want to get them in line with each other. Let's continue down this path for a little bit. Years ago, years ago, many years ago, m- most of you will not know this person, but a person and his family left RCC, and the reason was this. The reason? He gave in a one-on-one meeting was this. He didn't want his church experience, or he was tired of his church experience, being a classroom, a classroom. He didn't want his church appearance to be a, quote, classroom. Okay. All right. I don't want it to be a classroom either. But would you agree with this statement? To worship God properly, you must know stuff about him. Would you agree with that? Okay, to be truly devoted to Jesus, which is what our verse is talking about, we must know stuff about Jesus. The mind is the gateway to the heart. You don't properly get to the heart without going through the mind first. Well, many will say, oh, but Butch, come on. All we need to do is love Jesus. We just need to love Jesus. That's all we need to do. Okay, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That question involves our mind, right? We got to know who Jesus is intellectually. We got to know who He is. When God saves us, you can tell I get pretty excited about this topic, and I'm, get, you know, I, I'm, I'm earnest about this topic, okay? Because as a as a reformed Christian, I want I I long for the right balance. Between our emotions engaged in, in worship and in service and in loving each other, but I want our emotions to be guided by the truth of God's word that has to get into through our mind, into our minds. When God saves us, what does he promise to do? According to Romans 12, 1 and 2, he promises to renew our mind. Listen. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your heart. No, by the renewal of your mind. And the renewal of your mind results in a changed heart. How are we supposed to love God? What does the Bible teach us? With all our heart, yes. Does it stop there? No, with all our mind. With all our heart, all our mind, soul, and strength. What are Peter's last words to us? We will get there one day when we get to his second letter. And most of you know it and our kids know it because it's their favorite scripture, one of their favorite scripture songs. They sing it all the time. Second Peter 318. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowledge, that's a, that's a mind word. That's connected to our mind. And our mind is the doorway to our heart. I've started a really good book, a really good book by Michael Kruger. It was written to prepare Christian students who choose to attend a secular college. Now, I don't know how many of you are doing it. We probably don't have too many that are doing that or will do that. But I recommend this book for you, for me. Yeah, the target audience was graduating high school seniors going off to a secular college. But buddy, it's a good refresher for giving answers, doing what just what we're talking about here, for defending the basics of our faith. So it'll be in next month's news uh maybe no I've already picked next month. So it'll be two months from now, a book of the month. Michael Krueger, Surviving Religion 101. Those religion classes you get in secular Schools that want to tear down everything you've believed as a Christian, raised in a Christian home, raised in a church. It's a, it's a great book. Anyway, in the preface, Kruger says, writes this. Why are our Christian college students not better prepared intellectually? Is it because perhaps our churches in general are not Intellectually engaged with their faith. I say amen to that too, brother. I say a lot of churches are on this dangerous road of emotions only. Just love Jesus. Okay? Well, can you defend his resurrection? Can you defend who he says he is? I and the Father are one. Can you defend that? That takes mind work. That takes intellect. Or maybe, maybe, this, is ha- maybe this is happening. And it, it could have happened here. Thankfully, by God's grace, it didn't. Maybe, maybe church leaders try to engage people's minds. But then people reject it and leave because they don't want a classroom. And then the leadership sees them leaving and says, we can't keep doing this. We can't keep doing this. We're going to lose all our people. Kruger continues, quote, maybe the church is not asleep in terms of well-run programs or social activity or community engagement, though I'm sure all those areas could be contested, but it just might be asleep intellectually. It might be a time for a new doctrinal slash theological slash intellectual awakening in which the church recaptures her rich heritage of the Christian mind. And and below it, that's what we've been trying to do for 27 years. And then considers various ways to pass that heritage down to the next generation. And that's what we're doing, striving to do in Kids Rock and in Solid Rock in fact, listen to this, this, is, this, this, this was, I, will, I hope this will encourage Will and, and Brooke. One, one of our visiting youth told one of their friends who's a member here that their youth group was like a seminary class. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I pray they'll stick with us. I pray they'll stick. I pray they'll stick. I pray we won't change. Let me, let me you know, as a former youth pastor, let me just... Man, let me just risk going on the rabbit trail here real quick. Why would a youth group, why would it, and this is what we struggle with, all you old solid rockers, you, you, you know what I'm talking about here. Why would we do in the youth group what any group of youth could do? How does that set us apart? Why wouldn't we focus on our confession of faith? Why wouldn't we focus on what the Bible teaches about homosexuality? Why wouldn't we focus on what the Bible teaches about marriage? Why would we be all into, you know, how many hot dogs you can stuff in your face or, uh, how, how, or staying up all night without sleeping, thereby wasting the next day of your life, wasting a gift of the Lord, this is the day the Lord has made. Why, why would we do those things? Yeah, I was there back in my twenties and thirties, but God rescued me from that. Why would youth groups do the exact same thing that lost youth do, just to attract bodies? Why? Why would they do that? Well, I guess they, they just want big groups. We want we prefer saved groups. <laughs> and, and 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 may God give us God bless you. Will keep teaching, brother. Keep teaching. Keep teaching. Youth, you keep hanging in there. You keep, yeah, some of the things are hard. But you keep hanging in there. And you, keep, you beg God to give you the Holy Spirit to understand what you're being taught. Stay the course, church. Stay the course. Restore, how did Kruger put it? Uh, recapture our rich heritage of the Christian mind. And then pass it on. Pass it on to those that are coming up. Beloved church, beloved church. Why is this so important? Why is this so vital? Because as our minds are filled with the knowledge of Jesus. As our minds are filled with with his wisdom and his beauty and his wonder, and his love, and his compassion, and his grace, and his mercy. Our hearts are affected. If we are born again, if we have new hearts, if we are not Christian, then all that knowledge that your church leaders are trying to give you just lodges up in our head. It just lodges up there. It just stays up there. Life change doesn't happen up here. It's the gateway, but it doesn't happen here. Life change happens here. So if we don't have a new heart, then all the knowledge that the people who love you, parents, youth ministers, pastors are trying to give you, are just going to create this big Log jam appear in your head and it's going to have no effect on your life at all. That's why today is the day of salvation. That's why today is the day to beg God for that new heart, to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead. And you'll be born again. You will be saved. But when a believer's mind is renewed, their whole being which is represented in the Bible by what? Heart. Heart is a biblical word for our entire being. When our mind is renewed, our whole being, our heart, is dominated by Jesus. And that's our goal. Young people, that's our goal for you. Kids, that's our goal for you. That you will be dominated by Jesus. And it begins here. And we want to put it there. And as we put it there, we are begging God to get it here. So your life will be changed. For the glory of God. So, when that happens, we will have... Point three, an unrivaled devotion to Jesus. As Paul said in Ephesians 3.19, when we know, know, that's a mind word, when we know the love of Christ, which, as he says, surpasses knowledge, which is bigger than our peanut brain, which can't ever be fully known because it's so vast and wide and high and deep. But when we begin to know that love of Jesus, what does Paul say? We will be filled with all the fullness of God. We will be dominated by God. And our greatest desire, no matter what's happening around us, no matter how people are attacking us and putting us down and belittling us and calling us racist and bigots and whatever, our greatest desire will be to honor Him. Our greatest desire will be to please God and glorify Jesus and devote all that we are to Him. So I ask you this morning is that your greatest desire? Is that your greatest desire? To honor Christ the Lord in your hearts in your heart that's been fed by truth that entered through your mind is it your greatest desire to honor Jesus as holy, as separate, as unique, as one of a kind, as the one who has full control of your life. You're going to have to have that if you're going to stand when things get hot. You're going to have to have that. An unrivaled devotion to Jesus. Number four, second half of verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason, for the hope that is in you. To stand in this day, we're going to have to have an unashamed readiness to defend the truth. An unashamed readiness, always being prepared to defend what you believe. To defend the truth, to defend the reason you're a Christian and that you believe like a Christian and that you act like a Christian and that you live like a Christian, you're gonna to have to be ready to defend that. The word defense, as you, most of you probably know, because uh, it's highlighted a lot in studies and books that we read, it's the Greek word apologia, the Greek word where we get the word apologetics. Let's make sure we understand that. It doesn't mean we're apologizing for being Christians, oh, I'm sorry, I believe in man and woman marriage. I'm sorry, I believe in God created two sexes. I'm sorry. No, 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 we're not apologizing for being a Christian and for what Christians believe. We're not, we're defending, defending. Apology can also mean a reasoned argument, a reasoned argument. And that's what the word, that's the uh, nuance that the word takes here. It's talking about a reasoned argument. Always be ready to make a reasoned argument. How are you ever going to... Notice how four is connected to three. How are you ever going to do that if your mind is not connected? If your mind is not being renewed? The Greek word is actually... Listen, this is interesting. The Greek word, apologia, is actually a compound word combining apo, which means from, and logos which we all know means word, apologos, get it? Our defense is to be made, how? From the word, from the word, from what God has said, not from stuff that we make up, it's from what God has said. You're gonna see why that's so important in just a minute. As I said, this fourth argument flows from number three. Our devotion to Jesus Prepares us to defend what we believe about Him and the life that He has given us. In other words, devotion results in defending. To be able and willing to defend what God has said, we must first. Be devoted to him because, beloved, listen, if you're not devoted to him, you'll, you'll fall flat on your face. You won't defend him. You won't. You'll run. You'll hide. You'll put, you'll put your head in the sand. You'll say, oh, nothing to see here. You'll, you'll, you'll change the subject. If you're not devoted to Jesus, you won't defend him. Please understand that. These two go hand in hand and four, number four flows out of number three. Listen, listen, please listen even if we don't know all the answers. And we will never know all the answers. But Jesus has won our heart. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. It really doesn't matter what all the smart intellectual atheists say about him. It doesn't matter that they are smarter and more intellectual than me it doesn't matter that they have all these letters after their name Listen, I'm going with the creator of the universe. I'm going with the one who gave me life and breath and all things. I'm going with the one who gave me purpose and a reason for living. I'm going with the one who made me unafraid of dying. I'm going with the one who walked triumphantly out of the tomb after laying down his life on a cross For me, I'm going with that individual. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care how smart they are. I don't care how much brains they have. Listen, I know, I know, and you know, our answers may not satisfy the naysayers. And they probably won't. It doesn't matter. Please hear that today. That's a key phrase for today's sermon. One of the key phrases, it doesn't matter what lost people think. It just doesn't matter. My reasoned defense from my renewed mind may not persuade them. It probably won't. It does not matter. My words may have no effect whatsoever on them. It doesn't matter. They may dismiss me as some empty-headed religious nut. It doesn't matter. It's not about me. It's about the truth. It's about Jesus. And God has to open their eyes to that truth like he opened mine. And he has to give them faith in the risen Christ like he gave to me. That's not my job. That's his job. I'm free. I'm liberated. My job is simply to defend the truth to the best of my ability. Again, Kruger, quote, regardless of how smart people are, they cannot see the truth unless the Spirit opens their eyes. Thus, get this quote now, double underline it, thus... The widespread rejection of Christianity by intellectual elites has nothing to do with whether Christianity is true. (laughs) I love that. Thank you, Dr. Kruger. The widespread rejection of Christianity by intellectual elites has nothing to do with its veracity. Nothing, nothing at all. The unsaved brainiacs may not believe what I say. They may not believe the Bible. But that doesn't stop me from saying it and preaching it. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, everyone, even the intellectual elites, everyone to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Beloved, may we not be ashamed of the gospel. Whether our friends believe it or not. The gospel is the path to salvation, not our smartness. Jesus saves us, not our passing grade on a theology exam. Let's not be coward into silence because our message is unpopular. Or because people way smarter than us reject it. Let's always be prepared to make a defense. Which begins with our devotion to Jesus. Let's always be prepared to make a defense and let the chips fall where they may according to God's sovereign plan. The chips are in his hand. Okay? Okay? One last note of emphasis on this point, before we wrap up to get to number five and route. Five's a shorter point, so don't panic. OK? One last note of emphasis on point number four. Notice it does not say uh, it does not say, "Always being prepared to win the argument." Aren't you glad? It says, "Always be prepared to make a defense, to make a defense. Not win the argument. Just make the defense. That's important. That's freeing. Just verbalize the defense. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Just make the defense. Get the truth into their ears and into their minds. And beg God to get it to their hearts. Beg God to open their eyes to see the truth you're proclaiming. Beg God to open their hearts to believe it. See how it works? We do our job that God has commissioned us to do. We make the defense. And then trust God to do what only he can do. Give them new life. Open their minds. Open their hearts. Cause them to see the truth. Give light to the blind. Just like calls it, call, calling Lazarus out of that tomb. God's got to do that. That's not our job. Hallelujah. We, we, we're not able to do that. But he is. But we are able to make the defense. That's why we got to be Ready? Always be ready to make a defense. Number five, verse 16. Having a good conscience. We'll stop right there. That's just pointing to having an uncompromising lifestyle of consistent integrity. If we're going to stand, if we're going to be, again, this is linked to number four. To make the the good defense, we've got to have the lifestyle that backs it. Uh, Chuck window called this the quiet defense of the Christian life. The quiet defense of the Christian life. As we saw in point four, we're always to be ready to give the verbal defense. But this quiet defense that verse 16 talks about is to be constant. Constant. Okay? See, the giving of the defense is sporadic, depending on... The circumstances God brings into our life and the people he brings into our life. But the quiet defense, the lifestyle, the clear conscience, the good conscience, the the lifestyle of integrity is constant. That can't be sporadic. That has to be consistent. As someone else said a long time ago, our life is the platform from which we speak. Without the consistent life of integrity... We have no platform. A consistent, Christ like lifestyle will often open the door for testimony about the lordship of Jesus over our lives. That's why verse 15 talks about people asking you. You don't even have to initiate the conversation. They see your consistent lifestyle and they ask you, Why are you living like that? How can you live like that in this world where we live? What's the deal? They ask you. They start it. But it's provoked by a lifestyle of integrity, a life with a good conscience, clear conscience, above reproach, is another phrase that the Bible uses. Um, Swindoll again, Chuck Swindoll, defending the faith begins not with having the right answers to other's skeptical challenges, but with having the right lifestyle to raise the right questions. So, beloved, may we live totally for Christ. May we be fully devoted to him. And maybe we, we be ready to speak, ready to speak, kind of like Joan last Wednesday night during our open mic time. Be ready. Just be ready to speak, Okay. I told you I would, uh, our goal was maybe to do that once a month, give opportunities for others to share and encourage. And I told you I'd send you an email to prepare you. I think based on this message, I'm listening to my own message. I'm not going to do that because the Bible tells you to always be ready. So I'm not going to send you an email. I take back what I said Wednesday night. I'm not going to send you an email of preparation based on this sermon today. See, sermons change even the preacher, right? Okay, praise the Lord. Okay, let's wrap it up. Let's make sure we understand something very clearly as we wrap up. Our beliefs, based on this book, based on the truth of God's Word, and this is what people hate, our beliefs are exclusive. They are exclusive. We are not saying that the defenses we make are Our truth. We are not saying. They are. True for us. We are declaring. That they are. The truth. The only truth. We don't believe in. Personal truth. We would never. And I hope you don't. Make inane statements like, that may be true for you, but not for me. Beloved, if something is true, by, ne- by definition of the word true, it is true for every single person. Go crawl up on the top of the building and jump off and see if the law of gravity isn't true for Everyone. We believe in universal, objective truth as revealed in the Word of God. Jesus is not a way. He is the way. That statement's not original with me. He said that. He said that in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the truth life. Now, when we remind people of that and we preach that or proclaim that or declare that or offer that in a conversation, hey, Jesus is the only way, what are we often accused of? Arrogance. We're accused of arrogance. We're arrogant. I love what Kruger says about that. Listen to this. Is it arrogant simply to believe What Jesus has said about himself, not at all. It's his claim, not our claim. We're just passing it along. (laughs) Jesus said that about himself. We're not the arrogant ones. But of course, any attack on us is always attack on Jesus, right? Ultimately, isn't that what Jesus taught us? He also said this in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, i.e., exclusive. The gate is exclusive, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I pray that every single person in this room, every single person, from the youngest in here today to the eldest, will be a part of the few, ultimately. I know some of you still need to be saved. We're begging God to do that. We're begging God to make you a part of the few. The, a part of the exclusive group. A, a part of the group that is unashamed to just say what Jesus said. Just to proclaim what Jesus taught. The ones who have entered by the narrow gate. The ones who are following Jesus. The ones who are truly And actually and totally devoted to him. Who are striving to live wholeheartedly for him. And who are ready to give a defense for the hope that they have in him. All praise to Jesus. The Yahweh of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The battle belongs to him. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these these encouraging, challenging, edifying words that you've given us through the Apostle Peter. Help us, Father. Increase our devotion to you Enhance our readiness to defend the faith and sanctify us that our lives would be ones of good conscience, lives of integrity, lives that point people to you. Help us, Father. Help us do that. We need you so desperately. Thank you now for this time at the table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.